Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, inspiring centuries of scientific progress. Sometimes it seems like scientists never agree on anything. It's a field that lives and breathes on debunking existing theories and finding ways to disrupt what we think we know and understand. So it should really make us stand up and take notice when scientists more or less unanimously assent to a particular fact. And there is something like 100% agreement in medicine and the health sciences that Americans, on average, really need to lose weight. As we've mentioned before on the podcast, some estimates have shown that as many as two-thirds of the population of the country are overweight or obese. And that obesity has been strongly linked to all kinds of terrible diseases, including type 2 diabetes, which more than 29 million Americans suffer from, and heart disease, which is the country's leading cause of death. And you would be hard-pressed to find a nutritionist or medical doctor who wouldn't agree that this obesity crisis is at least partially due to the fact that Americans, on the whole, eat a remarkably unhealthy diet. The most comprehensive data we have about what Americans eat is the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Healthy Eating Index, which is based on a large-scale nationwide poll of what people eat, called NHANES, or the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. Here's Dr. Barbara Loria of the University of California at Berkeley explaining some of what these data show. It's 12 components. There's nine components that are measuring positive foods or healthy foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nutritious proteins, and dietary fat, um, also dairy. Uh, and then there's three components that are trying to get at uh, foods that we should stay away from or limit. Refined grains, sodium, and empty calories. And this is a healthy eating index that um, really gives you latitude. You get a score. If you eat french fries, potatoes, you get the vegetable. If you eat um, ketchup, you get the vegetable. So, you know, it's a diet that's achievable. People's diets are graded on a score of 1 to 100, with 100 being the healthiest. And our scores, as a country, are pretty dismal. Who gets a score of 90 to 100 on this healthy eating index? 0.1% of the population, 0.1%. Only 8.9% of Americans are getting a 70 or above. The U.S., on a whole, on average, we score 53. 53 out of a total of 100. If I was grading this, I would give this a, a definite F. We're getting an F <laughs> with regard to um, dietary intake. And keep in mind that this is based on a survey asking people what they've eaten recently. So if anything, you'd expect people to report they're eating more healthily than they are. Common sense would tell us that someone who had a hot fudge sundae for lunch is much more likely to lie and say they had a salad than vice versa. And so the actual grade for our national diet is probably even worse than it seems. Couple this with the fact that study after study has showed that Americans on average eat not just bad food, but way too much of it, far more than they need. And is it any wonder that we have rampant obesity in this country? And so what do we do about it? Generally speaking, there's two schools of thought about this. One says that this is a public health issue, and we need to design new regulations to help people eat better. Either hard regulations like banning trans fats, 
or softer ones like adding calorie counts to menus. The other says that it's all a matter of personal choice, and that if people are eating badly, it's really just their own fault and their own problem. And across the board, from public opinion to public policy, it's the second of these that has clearly dominated the conversation. Here's Dr. Rogan Kirsch, who studies political science at Wake Forest University. The term that one often hears in policy circles, interestingly, I don't know how much this makes it into our academic work, is consumer sovereignty. And you understand the basic idea. It's that government officials are far less able than any of us as individuals or as groups to know what we should put in our own bodies. It's a powerful frame in a nation that's dedicated to the pursuit of liberty it's a, and so on. Um, and so this personal responsibility frame has been utterly dominant. And as he's saying, that really has to do with the American national personality as much as anything else. We want to feel free to make our own choices. And so restrictions on what the food industry can or can't sell us somehow feel like limitations on our own freedom to make decisions. And of course, there are big companies for whom increased regulation around manufacturing food would be really expensive. And they've taken advantage of this laissez-faire political climate by aggressively lobbying to prevent increased regulation. And the result has been near-total legislative inaction on the subject of obesity. Two bills specifically treating obesity. Two bills in 15 years have passed one chamber of Congress, the House. In fact, it was the same bill that passed twice in 2004 and 2005. And the title of that bill was, if you don't know it, wait for it, the Personal Responsibility in Food Consumption Act. In the face of this scourge that many of you have done so much to document, to bring our attention to, to raise public awareness and media salience and so on around, what did the House of Representatives attempt to do? Immunize the food industry against lawsuits so the terrible things that happened to tobacco would not happen to food. It's a remarkably thin outcome. And the real problem with this idea of personal responsibility is that it's been shown again and again that people don't really understand the nutritional content of what they're eating. And so they're really not making informed choices. Here's Dr. Jason Block from Harvard Medical School. We did some work where uh, we went to restaurant chains and collected data on receipts to determine how much people were eating. And we also asked them to estimate how many calories were in the food that they were eating. Um, and what we found is that people underestimate a lot. If you look overall, it's about 275 calories that people underestimate. 25% of people underestimate the calorie intake of their food by about 500 calories. And that's a lot. The total recommended calorie intake for an adult is somewhere around 2,000 calories. And so if people are eating 250 calories more than they think they are at each meal, it's like they're eating an entire extra meal every day without realizing it. And so the problem continues and continues to grow to the point that obesity is often referred to as an epidemic. And many in the medical and nutrition research communities are now wondering if there's more they can be doing, either different research or a different way of presenting the results of their research, to help make sure that government is enacting policies around obesity that are effective and based on accurate information. Here's Dr. Christina Lewis from Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. We really strive to strike a balance between thinking about um, 
sort of better understanding of the physiology of those diseases and potential biological science approaches to dealing with them. And then also thinking about the reality of uh, the fact that these diseases are, are affecting a large number of the population and that ultimately our, our understanding of the physiology and the biology may not be enough to totally deal with them. And that was the subject of a day-long symposium held at the Academy on October 16th of 2015, entitled Towards Evidence-Based Nutrition and Obesity Policy, Methods, Implementation, and Political Reality. And this conference comes at an excellent time. First, because despite those enormous political and cultural obstacles, very slowly and gradually over the past 10 years or so, the idea that government should be doing something about obesity has started to gain a little bit of traction. And that's because widespread obesity has begun to be seen as a challenge to that other great American philosophy, capitalism. Here's Dr. Kirsch again. And then around the mid-2000s, 2005, 2006, and then into 2007, you saw increasingly number of business journals um, reporting that their bottom lines were affected by lost work days, more illness, and the like. And this, it became an economic conversation and our polity that often carries the day. So this toxic food environment frame, not so much for moral reasons, not so much for it's just the right thing to do reasons, not even always for public health reasons, but for business implications or impact reasons, you saw that start to shift. And so it's just a crack in the armor of the personal responsibility-only narrative of obesity. And maybe it's not the opening the public health community would have preferred, but it's an opening nonetheless. And many in government and the nonprofit sector who have been advocating for stronger policies to fight obesity are looking for new ways to capitalize on that opening. As the title of this conference suggests, new and better data are the tools that many of these groups are clamoring for most strongly. Data they can use as rock-solid support for the kinds of new policies that they would like to see enacted. Here's Dr. Sonia Angel of the New York State Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Policy change happens when you have the right information in the right hands at the right time. There is no way you can have these very clear, specific, measurable conversations with a partner like industry if you don't have the data with you, which means that we, we in public health and in our community at large really need to understand where the data is so that we can have these conversations so that we can become partners with industry in, in uh, making these advances. And in one sense, these advocates are in luck. Because thanks to modern technology, there are more data now than there have ever been in all fields of science. And nutrition is no exception if you know where to look for it. Here's Dr. Matthew Harding of Duke University. If we think about obesity um, and the opportunities that data affords us in terms of understanding the drivers and the mechanisms, I think we are at a better place in history now than we've ever been before to really understand all the factors that go into the decision-making um, as far as consumers are concerned. What he's getting at is what has always been one of the most difficult challenges in studying human nutrition. And that's accurately tracking what people are actually eating. Traditionally, this has been done with surveys like N. Haynes, asking people, what did you eat this morning or yesterday or last week and writing it down? And this has always been a problematic approach because just like people are really terrible at accurately estimating the nutritional content of the things they eat, 
When you ask them to remember what they've eaten and how much of it, they do a really poor job of doing it correctly. This is compounded by the fact that people don't eat ingredients, they eat dishes. So if someone writes down on a survey form, I went to a restaurant yesterday and had lasagna and a green salad, what does that actually mean in terms of nutritional content? How many thousands of different recipes for lasagna are there in the world? And how big is a portion? Even if you're really observant and can estimate roughly how large the piece was, how can you say accurately what was in that particular piece? Exactly how much tomato, how much ground beef, and so forth. That would probably be impossible even if you're the one who prepared and cooked it. What Dr. Harding is getting at, though, is that even if it's hard to determine exactly how much of and what kind of food people are eating, there's a lot of accurate information out there about how much and what kind of food they're buying. And this is thanks to the extremely detailed market research done by the food industry itself. So if you think about what happens when you actually shop for food, it is one of the few areas of human life where everything is actually quantified, it's tracked, it's barcoded, it's recorded. And the amount of information that we actually have about all those transactions and all the choices that people make increases day after day. So, uh, we know what people buy. The average supermarket in the US has about 50,000 products and as overwhelming as, as that number is, we actually do know everything about those products. Um, increasingly, we have a lot of uh, geographic location, uh, not just locations of stores, but the locations of consumers and how they get to the stores. Um, a lot of the newer data sets now have the ability to link that in the food purchase information to medical and drug prescription information. Uh, and of course, um, many people are involved in, in linking this to genetic information as well. Here's Dr. Lewis. It's not necessarily that these things were not happening before, it's just that they were being used by different groups. So, you know, industry and probably food manufacturers and people like that, they've understood consumer behavior and have been watching it for a long time and using it to sort of reconfigure products, figure out how to advertise things. And I think probably the scientific community has just sort of had an aha moment where we've been gone, oh, you know, look at, look, look at this wonderful data on millions and millions of people um, that can help us get some insight into how people make nutrition choices. There are at least three big problems with this kind of data, though. The first is obvious. There's a difference between what people buy and what they eat. A lot of food goes to waste, and it's impossible to tell who someone is shopping for when they shop. If I buy a cheesecake, I could be planning to eat the whole thing myself, or I could be throwing a dinner party. But in public health work, we're looking at populations, not individuals. So maybe despite the gross inaccuracies in these data when it comes to the consumption of food by a specific person, we can find useful and generally accurate information about what a community is eating, and perhaps trends in how that consumption is changing over time, and how that correlates with the community's overall health and well-being. Here's Dr. Harding. Yeah, and at a very basic level, I think we can get a very good understanding of what the consumption basket for the, aver for the average American looks like. The second problem is that most of these data are proprietary. They belong to the companies who are collecting them, so they can be purchased, but only if the companies agree, and only if your institution can afford it. And once you have them, you can't freely share them with other researchers. Here's Dr. Angel again. That's a problem, and I think it's an issue that we all need to contend with, is that once we purchase data, we can't put it in the public domain. 
um, and 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 it creates a problem because it becomes a non-shareable resource. And we we love this kind of information to be in the public so that they can mine and use these databases. The third problem is that these are not really the kind of data that most scientists like, for want of a better word. They're squirrely and easy to misunderstand, and not at all like those produced by science's all-time favorite kind of study, the randomized control trial. Here's Dr. Lewis. When you get training as a scientist, um, you're taught to try to design the best possible experiment so that you can make sure uh, that the thing that you're testing is really the thing that's causing the result that you're seeing. And uh, the best way to do that a lot of times is what's called a randomized controlled trial, which is basically um, you take, in, in humans, you take two groups of people and you, you say, I'm going to randomly select some of you to get this one thing I want to test and this, the rest of you get this other thing that is some kind of a control group. Um, and because you're randomly selecting those people, ideally the only difference between the groups should be the thing that you care about the test. So that when you see differences at the end, it's not because, you know, there were more people with brown eyes in this group and there were more people with blue eyes in this group or there were people with average higher BMIs in one group than the other because those things should all balance out between the groups. The difference is because of the intervention. And so you can really isolate that. But here's the thing. Doing a randomized control trial for public health policy is almost impossible. And that's a problem. Because in order to justify large-scale interventions to fight something like obesity, you need real data about their success. It's all well and good to say something like, people are drinking too much sugar, it's empty calories and it's making them fat. So let's put an extra tax on sweetened beverages like soda to discourage people from buying them. So you do that. But then how do you see if it's working? Even if you can figure out how to determine what people are buying and consuming, which is no small task as we've seen, how can you tell whether the tax is affecting those numbers? And even if you could, and could also show that people in the community are, on average, gaining less weight than they were before you levied that tax, how could you show definitively that these things are related and not just coincidental? The real world is just too complex to randomize for something like that. Unfortunately, when you're doing policy, it's a little tough to do that. You're not going to take the 50 states and randomize them and sort of say, okay, you 25, we're going to implement a soda tax, and you 25, we're not. So what you have is you have uh, messy real-world things that this happened, and this was the result we think. How do we know that this result actually was caused by this thing happening? And so we're stuck with data sets like the ones Dr. Harding was talking about collecting from supermarkets. And using these kinds of studies to draw conclusions that are definitive enough to inspire policy change is much trickier. And so we need new kinds of tools for assessing the success of particular interventions and gathering the data we need to build new ones. One set of techniques that's being much discussed in this context is something called systems science. Here's Dr. Terry Huang of the CUNY School of Public Health who specializes in it. We all know that uh, in a complex situation like obesity, there is a lot of uh, feedbacks, there's a lot of inter, uh, inter, interdependencies across um, thousands you know, of uh, uh, factors and uh, domains that all have a role to play in obesity, right? So, so we know this, except that we can't really cope with it. <laughs> um, the traditional toolbox doesn't really give a lot of leeway 
in actually uh, either understanding these feedbacks or using these feedbacks to inform uh, the next generation of intervention approaches. Traditionally, the scientific method is all about being specific. Let's look at the effect of one interaction and then change one thing and see if the effect is now different. The idea behind system science is pulling back a bit to look for connections and large patterns between and amongst different interactions that occur in large systems. To use the old cliche, to try to see the forest and not just each individual tree. So what happens is that when we're actually um, approaching a problem through our traditional biomedical lens, um, we kind of lose sight of the actual forest, right? The forest has its own topography. The light is shining in different places. There may be a fire far away um, that you're completely missing. So it's not to say that the details aren't important, um, and it's not to say that the big picture is the only thing that is important. Um, it's really both. Silos in and of, the, of themselves are not bad, right? Boundaries are not bad. What is bad is isolation. So if you're doing um, you know, a, a, a micro-level work within your own little uh, project team, um, and that's your boundary, and that's okay, but you need to be able to articulate how your work is related to everybody else's work and how everybody's work actually contrib contributes to the shared goal. An example of this kind of system thinking in action is work that the New York City Department of Health is doing that connects what we know about the biology of obesity with what we know about the geography of the city. Building better interventions by thinking about where people live and what resources are available to them there as things that are inextricably linked to what they're eating and therefore to their health. Here's Dr. Angel again. So we've taken a new look at the data to see what it means with respect to health equity and really thinking about it from a database approach. So we basically geocode mapped it and we looked, did a hotspot analysis to really understand what the problems are with um, diabetes control. What they did was lay a map of people who had displayed a particular biomarker for diabetes, a chemical level in the blood that's a clear sign of poor insulin use, over a map of New York's public housing, the places where the poorest New Yorkers live. And they found a really strong correlation, an enormous concentration of diabetes patients in a small collection of what she refers to as houses, which are actually large apartment building complexes that they used to call projects. That is really exciting because what that gives us guidance for is to realize that if we really want to start addressing the disparities in diabetes, there are specific locations we can go to. These people live there. And there were five houses in which if we knew that if we put a program in there, we would be likely to be able to reach a very highly concentrated cohort of this population. And so we actually did. We introduced something called the Harlem Health Advocacy Partners. And um, it targets the residents of these five NYCHA developments, developing a policy agenda to advocate for community health worker cert recertification and reimbursement, along with other policy opportunities. So I wanted to put this out there as trying to think about some of this data that is typically collected also in the clinical environment that we can start to use to drive some of our population health interventions in really meaningful ways. And here's Dr. Huang. This connective tissue idea 
I think is really what we're missing. Fundamentally, how do we build the glue in communities? How do we um, develop mutually reinforcing activities in a community space? And how do we integrate um, the local as well uh, with the regional and the, and the national? So it's, it's not that we haven't spent a lot of effort um, you know, in community space, uh, but there's a fundamentally different way of how we engage stakeholders as well as how we engage community uh, members. Um, and until we do that, figure that out, I don't think we're going to make a huge dent on health disparities. It's an exciting and important approach, but it also compounds one of the biggest problems with the new big data world of nutrition science, where we're trying to analyze huge streams of information like the one we mentioned earlier from supermarket sales data. The problem is the hugeness of the stream of information. It's just too much data for a person to easily wrap their head around, especially if they're trying to take the wide view and look at an entire system. One tool that many are looking for to help in sorting through this morass is mathematical modeling. Feeding big amounts of data into a computer and then asking it to sort and analyze it for you to look for statistical trends, the direction that things seem to be headed in. This can be a tremendously useful way of working, especially as computers have gotten both more and more powerful and more and more inexpensive, putting the kind of raw processing power that used to be reserved to huge mainframes on every desktop and every laboratory. There are problems here too, though. To start with, modeling is really pure mathematics, the purview of mathematicians and computer scientists, and really tricky to do well. When biomedical scientists and health researchers look at a more traditional kind of study, like a randomized control trial, they have been trained to be able to analyze the methodology it uses, so they can draw their own conclusions about its validity. With modeling, which draws on a totally different set of methods, they often just really don't know what they're looking at, and are forced to accept conclusions without being able to carefully question them. Here's Dr. Sanjay Basu, an epidemiologist at Stanford University who specializes in the effective use of modeling. You know, with randomized controlled trials, we at least know a few guideposts of what to look for. Are the groups well-balanced and matched? Are they representative of other populations we want to extrapolate the data to? Was there differential attrition and dropout from one group more than the other? Uh, do the statistics look kind of funny? Um, and what kind of outcome variables are they and are the ones that we want for the policy? And when it comes to simulation models, these kinds of things that we can rattle off are a little more difficult. And in fairness, even for the experts, statistics are squirrely things, and it's really easy to make mistakes. And frustratingly, sometimes the biggest mistake you can make is to be too specific. It's a feature of these kinds of models that often a simpler analysis, one that's less correct in the small scale, turns out to be more correct in the large scale. You do any experiment with any X variable, let's say the price of soda, and any Y variable, how much soda do you drink? And you get some data points. And most of us do our ordinary least squares regression line, if you remember the Gauss-Markov theorem, also known as Excel ad trend line, <laughs> right? And we get a general model that tells us the relationships between price and consumption. But there's always a smart Stanford undergraduate who says, oh my goodness, this professor's dumb. He doesn't know that I can increase the model complexity, add a couple more parameters, and with a sixth order polynomial, I can perfectly fit the data. So how would you tell this smart freshman, 
that their model is, quote, worse than yours. I would argue that if we repeated the experiment, given the issue of noise, that their model would probably not fit the data anymore or describe the general relationship we want to understand between x and y. For extreme values of x less than what's on the axis or greater than what's on the axis, our model might capture the general relationship, whereas that curvy model would give negative infinity on both sides eventually. So models may look more or less realistic, but that's not the question that I would hope you ask as a reader. The question I hope you ask is, is this a good question, and is the level of model complexity appropriate for the question? If it's a really complicated question, you need a lot of input data, maybe a complicated model is appropriate. If it's a question that's fairly straightforward, maybe what the advantage of the model is, is to boil it down to the most important variables, characterize those really well, characterize their relationships really well. And it's easy for models to get really complex really quickly. Everything we do in real life is spectacularly complex. And so in trying to simulate real life situations, it's not at all hard to reach the limits of what even modern computers are capable of. And of course, even the best mathematical simulation is only going to be as good as the data you put into it. We still need to solve those fundamental problems of actually knowing what people are eating. You need the data. You need the data for a 33-year-old Indian male who lives in California and how much sugar, sweetened beverages that they consume. Not, I can't find that in NHANES, right? I'm the uh, other Asian. Um, so, you know, it, it, it depends on how specific you can really be. And there may be a deception in microsimulation modeling when the person is publishing that it can really precisely target things, but garbage in, garbage out still applies. And that perception of precise targeting may be the biggest challenge to the effective use of mathematical simulations. Policymakers need something to point to that can, quote, prove, end quote, that a particular intervention is going to work in a particular population. And so there's a real temptation to say that because something happened in a model, it's going to happen the same way in real life. And honestly, that kind of specific prediction about the future is more than these simulations can provide. Here's Dr. Huang again. So even if you find a policy intervention in a model, you know, that it really seems to demonstrate an impact on reducing obesity, um, in the real world, there are all sorts of other implementation issues. There are co-costs and co-benefits, you know, that may happen. But I think that we as a field probably need to shift, uh, you know, our paradigm in terms of how we uh, connect uh, to the public and, and connect politically in broadly you know, defined term. Uh, because I, I think that in turn will actually reshape the kinds of scientific questions that we would be asking. And, and hopefully a byproduct of that would be that we would communicate better and, uh, uh, and help everybody else uh, around us gain a more nuanced understanding of what the models are actually saying. So where does all of this leave us? Well, maybe the takeaway is that if we want to fight a huge complex problem like obesity, there isn't going to be a magic bullet. No one study is going to reveal the core of the problem, and no one policy is going to fix it. And so maybe the more perspectives, the more good minds from different fields we have working on it, the better off we're going to be. Here's Dr. Lewis. 
think that there's a tendency, not just among policymakers, but among the public and probably the media, too, to sort of want to find, you know, the answer with one study. This new study's come out, this is it. And, and it's really not about that. It's really about, okay, how does this study fit in the context of everything else we know? Uh, you know, what is the body of evidence? And, and pulling that all together takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of patience, and um, it is doesn't sort of align with the uh, the pace at which things are often needing to be decided um, in the realm of politics. But I think it's hard. It, it's a lot easier to sort of say, okay, this is the study. I've got my answer. Let's go. Um, and that's not probably the best way to do things. So I think it's a matter of slowing down, being patient, and I think also, um, you know, educating the public and educating media and, and to some extent educating policymakers as much as we can about how to be good consumers of research. You know, what does this mean? Um, and how do, I, how do I implement it? Thanks so much for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. It was produced by your host, David Hoffman, with administrative and scientific oversight by Murray McLean, Dr. Amy Bodro, and Dr. Julie Schliske. Special thanks to all the experts who appeared in this episode, Dr. Barbara Loria of the University of California at Berkeley, Drs. Rogan Kirsch and Christina Lewis of Wake Forest University, Dr. Jason Block of Harvard Medical School, Dr. Sonia Angel of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, Dr. Matthew Harding of Duke University, Dr. Terry Huang of the City University of New York, and Dr. Sanjay Basu of Stanford University. All the material used in this episode was gathered at the event Toward Evidence-Based Nutrition and Obesity Policy, Methods, Implementation, and Political Reality, which was held at the Academy on October 16, 2015. If you're interested in learning more about the use of system science to study nutrition, Check out an earlier episode of the podcast entitled Bringing It All Together, A Systems Approach to Nutrition, published on September 11th, 2015. This episode has been a non-for-profit program of the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. Learn more about their work at www.nyas.org nutrition and www.nutritionresearchagenda.org.